following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. All people on this planet, without exception, live in a profound state of suffering. While our politics, religions, spiritual movements, schools, employers, and institutions all attempt to resolve this universal problem. None are successful so long as our approach, our methodology, our psychology is flawed. The tendency is to look towards external phenomena. We look for the causes of suffering outside. And yet, despite our best efforts, our noblest intentions, we continue in pain. We suffer in life because we do not get what we want. The world is a certain way and because our views conflict with reality, we suffer. Or we do get what we want. And then we suffer even more because we do not want to lose what we have earned, what we have received, what we have won. Sometimes through great strife, hardship, struggle. Change is a profound cause of suffering. Stuck in our old ways, our mind, our emotions, our behaviors, they conflict with reality, with a changing state of daily affairs. We demand stability from life, 
and yet the social and the economic world is collapsing. The reality is that nothing is permanent. And yet, why do we expect the world to have stability when we ourselves are filled with chaos? We have the illusion that life should always be what it should because we want it to be that way. Remember that we mentioned previously, life is in a continual flux of change, transformation. Yet the majority of people, the majority of souls do not want to change, do not want to adapt. We want life to be as it always was, such as before this pandemic. And yet if we wish to conquer suffering, we must embrace transformation with all the sacrifices, the challenges, the pain it involves. We demand stability from the world, yet we ignore how we ourselves are an extension of society. The society is the individual, and the individual is society. If we want stability in our life, we need stability inside. We always demand other people to change. And yet we tend to make no effort to work upon ourselves. We ignore, typically, that if we want changes in the society we live in, we have to cease ignoring how we contribute to the problem, how we compound the suffering of humanity and ourselves. This ignorance is a fundamental basis or axis upon which cyclical mechanical existence operates. In Buddhism, this is known as samsara, Cycling, repeating, again and again, the same problems, the same dramas, the same tendencies and mistakes. However, throughout this tragedy, we don't tend to question our own mind, to see if our psychological states are flawed, incorrect, incipient. And sadly, we do not really perceive how our own internal states affect people. We like to think we live in a bubble. We can think what we want, feel what we want, do what we want in the mind. And yet, the mind is an energy. It is a form of matter in different dimensions or gradations of existence which we've explored in the tree of life. So our mind has reality. If we are killing someone in our mind, that energy affects the person we are thinking about. And yet our society teaches us not to accept this principle that we become what we think. 
And therefore, our means are superficial. We look to the externals. We don't look to the psychological causes of pain. We want to examine the world through imperfect means. Through the lens of our theories. And we don't realize or recognize or want to see that our beliefs about the world have nothing to do with reality. This ignorance of cause and effect illustrates that we are asleep. We are unconscious beings. We are machines. Robots. We don't realize how our mechanical, repetitive behaviors create consequences, even if only in the mind. And even when the whole world tells us we are wrong, that we have a problem we continue to persist in, we stubbornly may reject it. We continue with our attachments because we are so hypnotized by a sense of self that is not real. Therefore, there is no need to believe in causality. It is a given. We know this from studies of science, physics, etc. Causality is a truth. There is nothing in the universe that is not caused. Neither is there a cause in the universe that does not have an effect. This is a fundamental axiom of science. And yet, when we approach the principles of causality to our life, to the psychological realm of our thoughts, our feelings, our will, we ignore, we choose to not see how our internal states produce effects produce conflict. While this law of causality is known as karma in the East, within Buddhism and Hinduism, such a principle is also known very well in the West as divine law, judgment. However, like many adaptations in the West of Eastern doctrine, we have greatly misunderstood this truth. We conflate the law of karma as a law of vengeance, divine retribution, which is not true. People misconstrue the law of causality as some force that vindictively ensures you get what you deserve. The universe, according to this view, punishes bad people and guarantees that no bad deed goes unpunished. When in reality, karma from Sanskrit, karman, literally means deed. Derived from kri, to do, make, cause, effect. This is the law of causality. Everything in the universe exists because of cause and effect. 
This, as I said, is a fundamental axiom of modern science. Just as nature is governed by mathematics, laws, principles, our psychology is governed by laws, spiritual laws. Although we in our modern culture, like to think we are spiritual. The facts of our behavior demonstrate otherwise because our deeds reflect the quality of our being. As Jesus said in the Gospels, by their fruits you will know them, by their actions, by their behavior. Our actions produce the facts of our life. How we choose to behave determines where we go. In the first two lectures of this course, we talked about the level of being and psychological rebellion. How we behave, even if only in the mind and the heart, produces consequences. If we're at a meeting perhaps before this pandemic, speaking to a coworker or a group of friends. It is easy to see and sense when someone is angry, even though there are no physical outward expressions of that sentiment. We can feel it. We can see it in a person. This sense has nothing to do with physical sight with the senses. It is a psychological sense which works through the medium of our physical body. We can feel the energy of a person even if those actions, that person's thoughts is completely unexpressed externally. This is why the Buddha taught Mind precedes phenomena. We become what we think. And therefore, we have to renounce this illusion that we can live inside of ourselves and think and do whatever we want. As if there is no law, there are no repercussions. Because in the example I provided, the friends or co-workers can become anxious and filled with dis-ease by this one person who has made such a profound negative effect on the group. Therefore, let us examine our mind. What is our level of being? What actions have led us to this present instant? What actions did we commit in the past that we've reflected upon? What mistakes have we understood? The reality is that we are trapped. We are in a cage. We are in profound hell, which as we've related is not necessarily a place externally. It is a psychological state of being. And yet we are not in hell because of some God, an anthropomorphic tyrant in the clouds, 
who dispenses lightning to this poor anthill of a humanity. That God, according to Nietzsche, does not exist because he's, he's true. It's right. It is true. That is an illusion that people have created to ignore their culpability, their mistakes. God does not throw humanity into the mud to suffer because we do not worship him. We are in the mud because we put ourselves there. And divinity is the one who opens the door for those who sincerely wish to change, to escape, to leave the pit. These are people who feel remorse for their past actions. Again, this is not morbidity, pessimism, self-flagellation, self-deprecation, egos of depression, self-hatred, etc. Remorse is a quality of the soul that recognizes it is wrong and has committed wrong, has produced suffering for others. That is the voice of conscience. And if we remember the tree of life, the sphere of judgment, inner divine judgment of our soul is Giburah, the consciousness of the law. We have to orient the ship of our life in accordance with this star, this guidance, which is inside. When we need divine help, aid, we receive experiences, inspirations, comprehensions. And this is what helps us to purify ourselves, to qualify our actions. This law of karma is essential for transformation because nothing emerges from belief. Thinking something is true, accepting a moral code, a dogma, a theory. The beauty of the soul, divine conscience, the sense of right and wrong is born through conscious work to breath the human soul and voluntary suffering in which we explain has to do with accepting the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to quote Hamlet really that outrageous fortune the most difficult situations of life are produced by ourselves without exception. Even if we don't remember how we produced that state, this is why it is important in our Gnostic studies to remember our past lives, to remember what we did and why we are in the situation we are in. I remember many years ago, I was having a lot of issues in my work, physically, with my relationships to my family. And I was praying and suffering a lot for, and asking for help. I remember invoking in the astral plane the Venerable Master Samael Onveor. And I spoke with him 
as he was showing me symbolic things, which are not relevant to this lecture, but he told me very clearly, you need to remember your past lives. And I was complaining, but I don't remember. And very severely, but with a lot of love, it doesn't matter. Because the law is the law. Our ignorance of the law does not absolve us from the effects of our wrong actions. We have to become conscious of this law in ourselves if we want liberation. It is not a theory. Many people believe in karma. They believe in past lives, but they don't have any knowledge of it from experience. And this is the demarcation between the Gnostics and the theorists. We have to work. We have to practice. We have to enact superior causes in our life of an ethical, spiritual manner. This is the code of conduct mentioned in any tradition, which means to embrace and embody the influences of the being. We have to confront our former actions, our mind stream, which is why Hamlet said to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. This is from Hamlet's soliloquy in the play of Shakespeare bearing his name. This is a symbolic text that teaches us to be or not to be. That is the question. Do we return to God or do we complain about our situation and waste energy and not comprehend the value of hardships, learning experiences, Karma is not a blind law. It is not mechanical. Like you do something wrong and then the universe punishes you. Out of a sense of resentment or pride. The symbol of justice with a blindfold and scales. A sword of justice in her right hand. reflects sacred law, arcana, principles in nature and the divine. Justice is impartial, not blind. Divinity wears a cloth around her eyes to show that justice does not look to your appearances, how you look to others, but evaluates your conscience. Your soul, based on the measurement of good and bad, our actions, the scale of our heart and the mind. This image finds its parallel within Egyptian mysticism with the Lord Anubis, the hierarch of karma, the great regent of the law and the tribunals of divine justice in the astral plane, in the mental plane, in the causal plane. 
He weighs the heart of the neophytes in a scale. On one side is the feather, on one side is the heart. This means that the feather of the mind, the aerial nature of the mind, and the fires of the heart, the cardiac center, must be in equilibrium. This is how we enter the hierarchies of the divine beings. It is done through conscious, deliberate, intuitive work. So again, justice is not blind. We are. This symbol shows us that divinity does not look towards superficialities, what we intended what we think was right, how noble our aspirations were, and yet if the consequences were disastrous, if we killed somebody, if we made a mistake, if we failed in an ordeal, the law does not reward us based on intentionality. It is based on consequences. Because the divine law is beyond intention. It is omniscience. And this is why justice wields a sword, because the divine hierarchies can admit us into the Garden of Eden. The cherubim with the flaming sword can allow us to enter and climb the Tree of Life. Or that sword can be turned upon us. Every temple in the astral plane is guarded by great beings who wield a sword, the Kundalini, the sacred fire. And they judge us and base their decisions of how they relate to us upon our own actions. I remember many times trying to enter certain temples and I was stopped by a guardian with a sword they only admit those who have earned the right to receive that help. Likewise, Anubis, in the internal planes, when he officiates in his tribunals of karma, wears a jackal's mask, a symbol of impartiality, showing us that divinity does not look or favor one person over another. Divinity treats all beings with equity, with dispassion, with clarity and judgment. There is no bias in that intelligence. Karma is not mechanical. There are incredible intelligences that govern this law. Personally, I've met Anubis many times. He is not a theory for me. I have invoked him and spoken with him. And he has taught me things about how to negotiate my path with wisdom. And honestly, when I have been before Anubis, I've been terrified. Because he is truly a profound light. He is beyond good and evil. He is beyond our concepts of good and bad. And therefore holds the scales of this world in his hands. 
He is the terror of love and law. Because divinity is so terrifying in his presence, but also the force of love. Because it is so profound. It is ecstasy to be before these initiates because of how tremendous their development. And so when I've had experiences with Anubis, I know that there's nothing that I can hide. Which is why in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's sad that in our modern mentality, we think we can do whatever we want and that there is no law. We think we can commit crimes even in the mind. But as I said, there are repercussions. So you might think you can hide from the physical law. You possibly can. But from divinity, you can't. I'll relate a brief experience that makes me reflect a lot. Outside my apartment today, somebody was shot five or six times. There were two people, they fled into a car and my wife and I were calling the police reporting what happened that we saw as a person was wounded on the street, shot randomly. And we could see the blood from this person as he lay there and other people came to help with the ambulance and the police. And I was reflecting before this lecture how these two criminals who shot the person and drove away think that they can escape the law. And I don't necessarily mean physical law. I mean divine law. It's sad that people think that they can murder, steal, rape, commit crime, and think that there is no consequence because they only believe in the physical world. If they knew the terrible reality of Anubis, I think that they might have a different course of life or action. So we have to really reflect on these things. Eventually those two people who I saw outside our home will have to be brought before the law internally. And the reason why people commit crimes like this is because they are so disassociated from their own conscience. The voice of judgment, the inner law, is dead in them. The ego, the moon, has eclipsed the sun. Astrologically speaking, Geburah can relate with Mars and the sun in astrological Kabbalah. Therefore, that intelligence is dead in people like that. But regardless of whether we think we're not being judged or not being perceived, there is a law that extends beyond this world. Which is why the Buddha taught that there are three eternal things in life. The law, karma, nirvana, and space. Causality is certain. And so is the cessation of karmic suffering, known as nirvana. 
the Buddha taught us Four Noble Truths. In life, there is suffering. Suffering has causes. There exists the cessation of the causes of suffering. And lastly, a path of cessation, which is meditation. Cessation, nirvana, in Sanskrit means to end pain, illusion, mistaken views, to experience the stillness and serenity when the ego is dead, when there is no I. Lastly, we have the Divine Mother's space, which has always existed, does exist, and is the matrix by which we obtain realization. Nirvana is not only a dimension or a place in nature, it is a reflection of our own consciousness. When we obey superior, compassionate law, enacting positive deeds for humanity, benefiting others, then it's a natural consequence. The law of divinity owes you and not the other way around. Divinity pays us with experiences. They give us ecstasies, samadhis, satoris, conscious awakened experiences in the tree of life which we realize through dream yoga. When we cease the causes of suffering, the ego, we awaken to our true Buddha nature, the consciousness, the eternal spaciousness of divinity, the apprehension of emptiness of self and other, the cosmic divine mother who has no form. The divine mother is a principle we work with every day and we'll explain how to work with her in the forthcoming lectures. But she is our divine derivative of God, the feminine aspect of our being. She is the mother of our soul, represented by innumerable female god, goddesses, female figures in mythology. She takes form to guide us to instruct us, to teach us in dreams, so as to live with rectitude and love. Karma, nirvana, and space interrelate. They constitute a fundamental reality for those who cease feeding the ego. It's important to understand karma, but we have to understand what nirvana is, what liberation is, because to recognize the root of illusion, we have to see from the heights. This might seem a little difficult at our level. But nirvana does not mean necessarily a heavenly place that we go on a vacation to. That has a reality. But nirvana means cessation. To end the ego. 
and to apprehend the real nature of our consciousness, which is spaciousness, mindfulness, awareness. Cessation of suffering is only achievable when we comprehend the four principles of karma. This is extensively discussed in Song Kapaz Lam Rim Chen Mo. Great treatise on the stages of the path of enlightenment. He elaborated four principles that we will discuss. The four fundamentals. The four dynamics of the reality of karma. Actions produce related consequences. The consequences are greater than the actions. You cannot receive the consequence without committing its corresponding action. Once an action is performed, the consequence cannot be erased. We'll discuss all four in detail. Karma is certain. It is infallible. The law of gravity is recognizable and always applies within the Earth's atmosphere. If you go off into space, gravity no longer has effect. These are certain laws. These are truths that are irrefutable. This is a reflection of a greater law, causality. While gravity pertains to planets, causality applies everywhere. All phenomena are interrelated. Nothing exists independently, intrinsically, in and of itself. This is the essence of Buddhist doctrine, interdependence, dependent origination. All phenomena have causes and effects. This is also understood in science, as we've explained. Spiritual sciences digress a little bit when they speak about the creation and the destruction of worlds, planets, suns, universes. Hinduism and Buddhism especially articulate in their doctrine, their philosophy, their scriptures, how every cosmos has a birth, life, and regression and death. This is because causality balances the evolution and the devolution of worlds with the purpose of maintaining harmony within all existing things. While these philosophical principles are very profound, they remain a conjecture, an abstraction, an idea without any practical reality, or purpose if we don't awaken and experience these things. These concepts alone do not resolve the everyday problem of our life, which is suffering. And this is the problem with many groups, many movements, is that people are too fascinated with the philosophies. And while it's beautiful to know these profound truths, the best thing is to experience it. So it's important to balance our study with our practice in harmony. And causality, while it does apply 
to these very elevated spiritual realities, we only gain access to that knowledge by enacting the proper causes and conditions that lead to that awakening. Causality is certain. Certain effects produce suffering. Certain causes produce suffering. And other causes develop realization, liberation, experience. Liberation, as I said, is a state of being. But it requires that we fulfill specific behaviors, the actions for their fruition. This is why every religion teaches ethics. Not a belief system, a moral code to follow mechanically, to repeat a hundred Hail Marys and a hundred Paternosters, and then we are saved. We have to comprehend the truth through action, not blind mechanical recitation. It is performed through conscious work. When we put our hand on a hot stove or in a fire, we feel pain. And then we learn through hard experience the consequences of heat and fire. While we may believe whatever we want about fire, it is difficult to deny the reality of this experience. So while we have beliefs about life, it is our actions that really define us, that determine and show us what we believe in truth, what we follow what we aspire to. But sadly, most people are very ignorant about how our actions produce suffering. An alcoholic knows that alcohol is destructive and yet continues to drink. Even when they lose their family, their job, their life, they do it because their desire, their ego is so strong that they destroy themselves even when the facts are tumbling down and collapsing before their eyes. The same with negative emotions. We give in to our desires, our negativities, without realizing how anger, how ego produces such suffering. Humanity, however, worships anger, deifies it puts it on a throne. Anger is a profound state of pain. Yet people worship this feeling and they ignore the consequences, like punching a window. I know the movies like to glorify anger, where the hero beats up the villain, punches through a glass window, and has no effect This is a type of mythology that is very prominent in humanity and keeps people deluded and thinking that anger has no consequences for the hero. And of course, all of us are the hero. We are the masters of the day. This is how the ego thinks. We feel that we are the most important being in the universe. This is the nature of pride, which goes hand in hand with anger. We believe many things, but we ignore the reality of anger. It is a profound misapprehension or understanding of karma. 
Anger is frustrated desire. It is a form of violence, even if not physical. We can perform acts of violence in our mind, even if we don't externalize anything. Just imagine a time, perhaps, in which maybe a person was criticized by their boss at work. They don't say anything externally. They say, yes, thank you, take feedback. But then in their dreams, they're murdering that person. Our internal reality has more precedence than our external. How we think is what we become. So on a basic level, if we are angry, we will always be victims of violence, angry situations. And it's easy to act with negative emotion. If someone approaches us with hatred, how do we react? Usually it's with the mind, with anger. Which is why Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 52, Whosoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. So everybody suffers from violence, both the victim and the villain. This is why Samael and Vior states that negative emotions are more infectious than any virus or bacteria. All religions teach us how anger must be restrained. We have to comprehend it. We have to annihilate it. And this is why Prophet Muhammad stated, The strongest among you is he who controls his anger. When we comprehend a defect, we will never act on it. In fact, we will work on its elimination. Because to continue with that psychological element is to live a flawed life with the possibilities of that fault taking control when the conditions and the external circumstances are ripe. When the causes and conditions are ripe, when they are right, the ego manifests. Yet when the ego is dead, even when the external situations arise, they don't provoke in us the same response. A lot of people ask us, how do we know if we're dying to the ego? The reality is, and the question is, do we react to the same situation in the same way? Or is all anger dead? Do we feel no retaliation? Do we feel compassion for our aggressor? Do we transform the situation? That is how we know. We respond to life with intelligence, with understanding. The consequences are greater than the actions. This principle supersedes Newton's third law of physics, which states every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But in reality, the reaction, the consequence, is greater than the cause. A seed of a plant can become a tree, something beautiful and great. Likewise, our esoteric discipline can produce a Buddha, an angel, a God. 
the effects are greater than the cause. When you throw a stone into a pond, the water ripples within and throughout the lake, extends out from the center to the periphery. We only look at the initial appearance of things, but don't really contemplate how our actions have real profound, penetrating effect. Our actions permeate everything. And this is being studied in quantum mechanics, how even our attention or observation of a study can make light particles change form into waves and vice versa. Likewise, our observation of light particles can influence them on a very subatomic level. So, imagine with our actual deeds. We see the splash that we see in the water after throwing the stone. We look at the appearances of things. But we don't really contemplate how that sound might expand out into the surroundings. How our actions have real, profound effect. This analogy pertains to our spiritual life. Like the lake that is rippling, our actions can ripple through existence. Extending beyond other parts of the world. The stone when it enters the water, displaces and can alarm the creatures that live there. Things that we don't see, and yet the effect is there. The same thing with our internal life. This is only verifiable through observation, self-remembrance, mindfulness. So this lake metaphor represents our internal and external life. And while this principle is easy to see externally, we tend to remain very asleep to how this principle acts moment by moment, inside, internally. Our internal states produce reactions in the physical world. External events and internal states relate profoundly through interdependence. Our psychological states, according to Samael and Vior, when they are inappropriate in relation to the external event, can produce disgrace, no matter how small that action might be. And yet our psychological states, when they are appropriately matched to the event, we follow the voice of intuition and conscience. This is the voice of inner judgment. This is how we march upon the path of success, he says in the revolution of the dialectic, to paraphrase. Actions become amplified. Certain situations, when their conditions are just right, our behaviors become magnified, larger. They reach more people. They influence more people. For example, you have a pedagogue or a public speaker, they may have a very powerful speech and yet this would have no effect unless it was before an audience where the effects of those words would come to fruition. 
Likewise, certain actions cannot have any benefit if the surrounding conditions are not conducive or right. People often complain that they don't see how they can make a difference in the world. This is in ignorance of the second principle of karma. I like a statement by the Dalai Lama who said, if you think you can't make a difference, just imagine a mosquito in your bedroom when you're trying to sleep. A little action can have a great effect, can motivate, can make others respond. Such as in the nonviolent political movement of the Dalai Lama through his spiritual teachings. Therefore, the seed can become a mighty tree to feed multiple generations. The seed of compassion produces happiness in this life and in other lives to the point that we can scarcely imagine. However, the seed of a hateful action can produce unimaginable suffering. So, the second principle of karma can work in our favor when we understand that good deeds can be amplified for the benefit of self and other. When we intuitively learn to gauge each moment, each situation, to know the right action, this is something that is very subtle and profound. That is the voice of conscience, which we can only develop more and more as we strengthen that connection through meditation, through work with mantras, with energy, as we explained previously. When we understand that the seeds of egotism produce the tree of death, to use the Kabbalistic language, we avoid acting upon desire at all costs. You cannot receive the consequence without committing its corresponding action. If you wish to overcome hunger, you must eat. If you wish to be clean, you must bathe. If you wish to lose weight, you need to exercise, eat better. Every action has its corresponding consequences. The same is with spiritual insight. You must put into motion the causes for its fruition. If we want to experience wisdom, astral experiences, jinn states, we have to work with these laws to practice the Dharma, the teaching, through our exercises that we have so abundantly in our tradition. Unfortunately, in our humanity, there is the tendency to want everything for free, to have without earning it. And this is a very serious obstacle for people in spiritual groups because many people think that they can take a shortcut to God. We reap what we sow, says Galatians. Our current existence is the result of our previous ones. Even the actions before our birth, when we were incarnated in other bodies. So as I said, reincarnation, return, is not a theory for those who have awakened 
internally. And as a belief system, it doesn't really do much. People might be inspired to be, in a conventional sense, a good person in a Buddhist or Hindu school. And this is noble. But when you really comprehend beyond just a belief, how your current actions produce suffering for good or for ill, and that this magnifies our trajectory, the energy of our spiritual movement, our projection into space through all of our activities in mind, heart, and body, we begin to really take ethical actions seriously. So people who enter states of suffering are merely living the consequences of their former actions, even when they are asleep and blind to the causes they initiated. And sadly, people complain. We complain against karma, against justice. We think that, in an egotistical sense, that this law is not fair. It's blind. But the reality is we are blind. Because we don't comprehend how even in the greatest crises, that we are responsible for our fate. We are asleep. And in relation to that experience I related about Samael and Vior, when he appeared to me, it was really interesting. He was dressed in a giant suit of armor. He appeared as a warrior, towering over me. When he came down from the sky after I invoked him in the astral plane, he was in a full suit of armor with no helmet, and he had a shield that was from the bottom of his feet towards his head. It's a tower shield, and he dropped it, and the earth shook with tremendous force. And I remember feeling that awe and reverence before the majesty of God through the Martian influence. And I was so terrified, I didn't know what to say. And he looked down at me and smiled and said, Hi, in English. And I stood there trembling because here is the God of war, the leader of our movement. And he was showing me things how even his eyes, as I was asking him questions that weren't relevant to what he was teaching me, my mind was being deceptive. He could see everything inside of me. And therefore, his physical appearance was shifting, changing to reflect what he saw in me. He had a mask appear on his head where I couldn't see his eyes. And I remember meditating on the experience later and realizing that he was showing me that I'm being blinded by my ego. I was interpreting things according to my mind. But of course, that symbol of him being an armor represented what I needed to do at that time to really fulfill divine justice, to have the resilience and the patience and the forbearance to withstand the pain of the ordeals I was experiencing. But Salmael and Vior was showing me that you are blind. I am not the blind one. And it's really humbling because justice and karma is divine. The law of balance is governed by intelligence. But we are the ones who are asleep. We live feeding our ego, our pride, lust, anger, fear, vanity, greed, envy. 
We don't comprehend that these egos create all of the pain of our life. We blame the external world. We don't really have any depth if we're honest. And so in relation to this law, Samal and Vero was teaching me that you have to remember your past lives. But you can't see that in yourself if you don't work. And he was showing me in that experience too that I was being very lazy. And he pointed that out to me. And I feel very inspired by that experience. Very humbled. We cannot receive the consequences without committing its corresponding action. You want to experience the heavens, you have to earn it. We have to work. And a simpler level, when angry people make other people angry, this habit and cycle repeats. It becomes a mechanical, petrified, stony thing. It's a concrete reality and a recurrence, a situation that brings people suffering. However, if we, in that situation, we choose to respond with compassion. We don't feed into that negative current. We smile in a genuine way with love, conscious love, comprehension. We demonstrate compassion. Then we can transform the situation. Someone smiles at you in a genuine, kind, compassionate way. We're likely to smile back. It is a basic law of behavior. Therefore, if we wish to change our circumstances, we must conquer suffering with upright action, with ethics, to be a warrior in battle against ourselves, to conquer ourselves with serenity and insight. In relation to this law, there is some confusion amongst Gnostic groups where they believe that couples who unite sexually, who mix their creative energies, who work in alchemy, or who unite sexually with their partner, that they share or receive each other's karma. This is a confusion of a verse from The Perfect Matrimony in a section called Adultery, where he explains how when a woman being the receptive force sexually connects with different men, she accumulates the energies of that person. So these multiple influences impregnate the woman, the energies of the female body, but also the internal bodies. And therefore, when someone connects sexually, a man connects sexually with her, he absorbs the atomic essences of those men which creates problems. But of course, this is an inevitable thing that people have to face today. Nobody is a saint, especially men. Both men and women have their faults. Nobody is innocent. Nobody is pure. So therefore, we can't judge anybody. But Samal and Vera mentions how when a couple unites sexually... They exchange force and therefore all the accumulated essences of the other men are shared. But Samal and Vior did not say that people share karma. 
And here's the re reason why. If a man commits murder, does the wife go to jail? If a woman steals from a grocery store, is the husband charged for theft? What happens is that the couple magnetize each other based on their connection. And therefore, these atomic essences of other men produced shared tendencies, egotistical qualities. People begin, the couple begins to share egos with each other, but also from their former sexual connections, which is why sexual union is very sacred. It is powerful. Therefore, we should not take it lightly. But of course, all of us have betrayed the sexual mysteries. We have to work with where we're at, at our level, with humility and love for divinity and these mysteries so that we can transform ourselves. Lastly, once an action is performed, the consequence cannot be erased. Many people like to believe that we can take back an action and be forgiven, that everything will be the same as before. But deep down, we understand that actions cannot be erased. If a man murders someone with a gun, he cannot take back the bullet. If we spoke a word of hate, we cannot undo the words we uttered. But likewise, when we enact genuine, compassionate, virtuous deeds, people do not forget our kindnesses, the sacrifices we make, the humility we show. Consequences last. They are permanent. They never cease to exist. You can't deny it. A child who suffered abuse and trauma is forever influenced and shaped by that event. While such people can heal with therapy and very deep works of meditation upon themselves, the effects of a, such a violent, disturbing, or traumatic energy in childhood cannot be erased. In reality, people do not like to look at themselves because in some moments of life, some very traumatic experiences are too painful. They're too painful to remember. We have memories that become suppressed. We may like to go on about our day. We ignore that fight we had when we were younger, the violence or suffering of a breakup, an emotional trauma, and yet suppression of the memory continues to exist no matter how much we like to ignore it. This produces all sorts of conflict within relationships. Just as terrible events cannot be erased or forgotten, likewise, conscious works and voluntary deeds of compassion can never be erased. This is incredible inspiration to change, to behave ethically, if we comprehend this principle in action, we have inspiration and empowerment of right action. When we understand that nothing we do can be taken back, 
we learn to fulfill upright thought, upright feeling, and upright actions in our moment-to-moment being. However, only the being is perfect. Even the gods, the masters, the prophets, the Elohim make mistakes. This is why, while consequences cannot be erased, that a superior law is necessary. That superior law is mercy. This is well known within a Gnostic hermetic axiom. When an inferior law is transcended by a superior law, then the superior law washes away the inferior law. Divinity is above the law and is forgiveness. Merciful divine action can supersede any wrong to pay, to cancel our debts. Superior action is the basis of religion. When we examine the lives of the great masters of meditation, the prophets, the initiates, they were able to overcome terrible adversities through their forbearance by following superior laws. While our actions cannot be erased, we can be redeemed. Comes to my mind a story of Mahatma Gandhi. He performed a hunger strike because of violence and civil war in Pakistan where Muslims and Hindus were killing each other. As a result, the fighting stopped, whereby people from both contending parties approached Gandhi and dropped their weapons. This is so vividly portrayed in the 1982 biographical film of his name. Highly recommended. A Hindu man approached, distraught, anguished, despairing. I am going to hell for having killed a Muslim boy, he said. The Muslims killed my son. And this man was in such pain before Mahatma Gandhi, feeling his worthlessness and his terrible crime. But yet he had the inspiration and the conscience to repent. Gandhi told him very serenely, I know a way out of hell. Find a boy whose parents have been killed. Raise him as your own, but be sure that he is Muslim and that you raise him as one. This cancels the debt, especially when we do the thing that we feel we can't do out of sacrifice of our own pride in humility for the benefit of others. Forgiveness of wrong actions exists. Redemption is a reality. For those who work with the law of mercy, the law of Christ, the Christic energy, the being. If you study the sacred arcana of the Tarot, this is Arcanum 11, Persuasion. We have a statement in Gnosis. The lion of the law is fought with the scale. In that image of the sacred tarot, Arcanum 11, 
which we've explained in our course, The Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah. The Divine Mother opens the jaws of a lion with gentleness, serenity, equanimity, insight. Not violence, but the serenity of God. The calmness of God. The intuition of God. The opposite is coercion. It is egotistical. We try to force another person to think, to feel, to do as we want. And as you look at history, we realize that coercion is the cause of violence. Thinking that we can exert our will upon another. And this is what that man did in the example of Mahatma Gandhi. He thought that he could redeem himself from the death of his son by killing other Muslims, coercing them, killing them. So coercion is violence. It is revenge. It is retribution. But grace and mercy is a persuasion, a persuasive force. Kindness is a much more crushing force than any anger. But we have to learn to experience that state, to cultivate it. The only way you're going to cultivate those types of experiences is by facing the worst. Because no one can face the lion of the law and think that they can conquer without hardship. We conquer through serenity, through dispassion, through equanimity. This grace and mercy is how we negotiate with divinity so that we don't have to repeat suffering. So the man who asked Gandhi, what do I do? He realized that in order to negotiate his karma, he had to perform superior deeds. Go the extra mile. And this is how we cancel our debts. We escape hell. This is how we understand St. Paul's explanation of the absolution, the abrogation of the law, to cancel the law. How we pay what we owe by receiving the grace of divinity. This comes in the form of intuitions in the moment and through our meditations. We'll conclude with a statement from Prophet Muhammad in the oral tradition of Islam, the Hadith, which is quoted extensively in Al-Risala, Principles of Sufism. He stated, One who repents from sin is like one who has never sinned at all. Uh, thanks for um, such a great lecture. It's very deep. and uh, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I... I heard you said um, uh, in the couple, uh, the partners don't share uh, karma. However, my question is, um, I know especially um, when doing uh, in, a, in a sexual act, uh, partners, they give to each other's energy. So I would like to know, uh, let's say if one of them is working hard, you know, uh, spiritually to to transform themselves, to, to transform him or herself. But on the other one, you know, is, I mean, don't, um, doesn't care. So 
in this case, the one who is making effort to change um, to, to change his life or her life uh, isn't getting affected by the other one's life uh, anyway because since uh, time by time they are bathing to each other uh, uh, in each other's um, energy. So uh, don't you think one will way somehow in the other one's life? Great question. That's a concern that a lot of people raise. The reality is that while the couples magnetize and charge each other based upon their level of being, the important thing is that if we're working seriously in ourselves, we can work despite the fact if our partner does not practice Gnosis. It's good if they can. Obviously, there's a lot of energy involved in development that is produced. But I remember a story, especially your question raises for me, an experience I learned about regarding a disciple of Salm Island Vior. His inner name was Garga Guccinas, or his earthly name, Julia Medina. He was a disciple of Salm Island Vior and very dedicated to the doctrine. He was married and his wife was totally against Gnosis. She was against him practicing. She didn't like the teachings. She criticized her husband. And all the while, Julia Medina, at the time, only said, I love my wife. She is my queen, and I am her slave. Therefore, I will bear all things for her. The important thing is that we love our partner. That is the atmosphere and the matrix, the conduit by which we develop the soul. So, Garga Kuchinas practiced for many years with his wife, even when she didn't. They connected, and obviously there's a level of cooperation there in love. He eventually reached mastery. He reached the sphere of Tifereth in Kabbalah, the fifth initiation of major mysteries. Eventually, he took the spiral path. But his wife saw how much he had changed so profoundly that she realized the effects of this work. And then she entered Gnosis. This is why Paul of Tarsus states in the New Testament, How do you not know whether you shall save your unbelieving wife? Or how do you not know, believing wife, that you shall not save your unbelieving husband? What matters is that there's love. You know, that's the important thing. It doesn't have to be that one partner is Gnostic or not. Or both are Gnostic. If you're really serious about your work, and I speak this in general to people, even if your partner doesn't practice Gnosis, what matters is your concentration and your energy, your work. Obviously, when a couple unites sexually, they're sharing a lot of force. And there's an exchange there. And if one's partner is committing acts which are negative, which may be contrary to the teaching, obviously one has to transform it. Not easy. Very difficult. But the knowledge you can gain 
a person can gain from that type of experience is invaluable. What matters is not whether one is Gnostic, but that there is love. That is the key. Love and desire are totally incompatible. The desire for a Gnostic partner is an obstacle. What matters is that there is real understanding, affinity and thought, feeling and will. I hope that answers your question. Yes, you do. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, thank you for answering my question. Um, if you're working on an ego, such as like envy, for instance, and you see it rise in you as you're self-observing, what can you do in that moment in order not to create a karma um, in, in just feeling that ego in the heart or in the mind? Good question. When that happens to me, I pray. I pray for help. You know, any ego is like that. If you are really being attacked by an ego, it could be anger, envy, pride. You have to breathe deeply and really reflect and ask your Divine Mother, help me to understand what this is. It's funny, recently I was traveling with my wife out of town, trying to get away from the city. We went to go hiking away from people, so not exposed so much to what's going on. And I remember the morning of that day, I had an astral experience where I was driving down a major street in Chicago. It was 4 a.m. in the dark. And I remember stopping in the middle of the street where there, where there were no people. And my mother, my physical mother, in the dream, stopped me and asked me to open up the car. She was outside. I pulled up to her and then she knocked on my door and I got out of the vehicle and she got into the driver's seat and I went into the passenger side. And I was really reflecting, what does this mean when I woke up? This was before I went traveling out of town. Later that day, we had a funny experience where there was a lot of traffic at a drive-thru in a Starbucks. And, you know, I had cut off some guy who wanted to get his drink. The man got really angry, rolled on his window, and was really unpleasant to me. And I was seeing so many egos of anger and rage and real disturbing things that I didn't like what I was seeing. And my partner, she said to me, this is getting dangerous. Let me switch sides with you. So I got out of the car. She got into the driver's seat. And then I sat down in the passenger seat, like the dream. And I was begging my divine mother, help me to understand my anger in this moment. Because it was very strong. Wanted to retaliate, speak negatively to this guy. And I just breathed for 10 seconds, inhaling, holding the breath for 10 seconds, exhaling. And I was praying my mother help me to understand and just relaxing. And in that way, I started to see the egos that were provoked in that ordeal. So my divine mother, figuratively speaking, got in front of the or got into the car, my, my mind. It was driving my car, was calming me. And in a state of equanimity, I was able to work later on 
and eliminating this. Praying for help is the key. So if you find yourself attacked by any ego, whether envy or anger, breathe deep. Relax. Observe your three brains. And pray with your heart, my God, help me to understand and to separate from this. You know, in that example, I was really begging. And then after maybe 10, 15 minutes of introspecting, I was calm again. You know, so simple experience. And I know we like to think of astral experiences as being some kind of ecstatic thing where we're flying in the clouds. But my divine mother and your divine mother comes to you to show you how to live your life daily. So that's a simple way, you know. Breathe, relax, introspect. Don't act. Don't externalize anything. Just reflect and pray in your heart and whatever words are natural to you. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. You're welcome. The example you shared with us from the movie Gandhi represented a physical restitution how does one make restitution for thoughts and words that, that uh, you know, can't be brought back? Sure. There's a saying from Prophet Muhammad. He said in the Hadith, I pray 70 times a day for my faults, for 70 faults that emerge. You know, if you f- find that you're seeing all sorts of egos in yourself, the only real way to be free of those defects, that karma that is crystallized in those aggregates, is to comprehend them and to eliminate. So we have to really strive for a long time to be completely rid of negative thinking, negative feeling, negative impulses. But again, if you find yourself in the moment where you're seeing these thoughts that are negative, the important thing is not to repress them or to be afraid that somehow I'm committing a sin. Because this can be a mechanical ego that thinks that it's observing the three brains and doing the work. And we all develop this type of Gnostic aggregate, these faults. So to avoid punishment, so to speak, suffering the consequences of our former actions in a very severe way, to be free of those negative impulses is a long work. And in the process of working on the death of the ego, it's important that we learn to negotiate with the law, learn to negotiate with the tribunals of justice. I wouldn't say necessarily over small things like that, but, you know, But, you know, we face situations where big egos emerge that are very difficult. I know in the beginning we struggle with this churning of thoughts and negative sentiments. To be free of them, we have to comprehend their source and eliminate them in meditation. That's how we are forgiven before the law. To reach forgiveness, we have to annihilate the ego related to those faults. So if we committed murder in the past and we have that ego of violence in ourselves, 
to be free of that karma of being punished, we have to eliminate that aggregate. And in that way, when you eliminate the ego, no punishment is necessary. But of course, this brings up an interesting point because some egos cannot be eliminated unless the karma is paid first. This relates to very ancient debts that we have to pay with a lot of patience. I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Any other questions? Yes. Thanks for your great class. I have a short question. Right, so in the Bible, in several um, chapters and verses, it states how the sins of the father can be met on the met out on the on the son, and at other times it says God is a merciful God, God is a merciful God, and He won't transfer the transgressions of the son of the father to the son. So in terms of karma, which one of these is true? Can the sins of the father be met on this on the son or not? That is in relation to a type of symbolism that's very profound. We know from the writings of Samal and Vior that there are forms of karma that are intergenerational. You know, some people have commonly called these family curses where some kind of bad luck always seems to repeat for a certain family. This is very deep because some people are born into the same families again and again because of their actions, their karma. So I remember asking and speaking with some island viewer on the astral plane about my past lives. And he was telling me in that one experience, you need to remember your past lives so that you can understand your present life with my family. Because the ordeals that I was struggling with related to my, my parents. So this principle relates to your question because A lot of times, we live on, we return into the same families that we've always lived in, in past lives. So oftentimes, those people in our families who are our children, perhaps were our fathers, were our mothers, etc., and vice versa. So the sins of the father live on in the son, and the sins of the son live on in the father, so to speak, because of recurrence. We tend to gravitate back to the same families we lived with for centuries. This is why people and families can push our buttons, so to speak. They know our weaknesses. It's very ingrained. It's very mechanical. And so karma lives on and repeats. Salmal and Vera mentions that we live on and continue through our descendants. We reincorporate into the bodies of our family members our further, our further generation, so to speak. And so there's a lot of subtleties to that point. The sons of the father live on in the son because of this dynamic. I'm sure there's other meanings and representations and interpretations of this principle, but that's a basic one that I can offer. Hello. Quick question. 
if you um, are doing good deeds as part of your vocation and you're because you're in a helping field, can you gain karma through that? Good car, like good dharma through that, even though you're being paid a salary. Absolutely. Many jobs, things that we do, are paid for not only physically but also internally. So, in a profession where you're helping people or serving the community, providing for a very special need, we get paid internally too. That's a form of sacrifice for humanity, especially when we work jobs that are very difficult, jobs that a lot of people would not take on. Those kind of occupations are very noble. And we also get paid not only through a paycheck, which is part of it. We get paid physically so that we can take care of our needs, but also to help humanity if we can, in whatever way. So yes, a lot of people and movements in humanity have served a greater purpose. For example, Mahatma Gandhi and his movement, even Martin Luther King, Dr. King, and the civil rights movement performed a very necessary function. A lot of dharma for that. But of course, doing that kind of occupation was very painful, challenging. And also, as, as you can see from the examples of Gandhi and Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated, not saying that one has to go out on a job and risk their life, you know, could involve that. But the important thing is that whatever job we have, we perform with ethics, with compassion. But of course, establishing healthy boundaries, knowing what to do, where to go, how to act, what to expect, and how to respond, and know how to set limits if that's too difficult. All those principles come into play. Hope that answers your question. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Any final questions? So I invite you to study some of the practices we have available in relation to karma. I know a lot of you are familiar with the runes. The thing to remember is that if you're working with a particularly difficult situation in your life, you can work with a rune knot, which is a practice we use to work with Anubis, the hierarchy of the law. And in that way, whatever difficulties we have, we can ask for credit from the law. We can be suffering through a difficult circumstance, a challenge, an ordeal, and we don't know how to resolve it. We can ask for credit because the law of karma, just as like a bank, can offer credits, which of course we have to pay back with good deeds. And the important thing is that we always pay back what we owe. So if we ask for credit, for help, we can receive that assistance through the rune knot, which we have available on GnosticTeachings.org, but also in the book Magic of the Runes. So way to negotiate with our particular circumstances. We don't have to suffer mechanically through our life. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org.
You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagonosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.